If you happen to be in need of a new t-shirt, hoodie, sticker, journal, or magnet, and want to help support this podcast, why not kill two birds with one stone and visit our official merch store? Check out the ever-growing selection of designs inspired by Japanese history at ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com. Thank you for your support. Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 6, Episode 1, The Age of Entertainment. Welcome to Season 6, The Later Heian Period. I initially chose to divide the Heian Period for the sake of my own convenience in producing this show. The more closely I studied the Heian Period, however, the more I became convinced that this division also makes sense historically. The early part of that era, which we covered last season, was defined by court drama and imperial power. The later part of the Heian witnessed the flowering of Japanese culture, the decline of the Daijo Daikan, and the rise of the samurai caste. I have divided early and late with the dramatic rebellions of Taira Masakado and Fujiwara Sumitomo, but this was a personal choice and not representative of how other scholars have divided the nearly 400 years of this era. However, because there is no scholarly consensus on when the early Heian ends and the later Heian begins, much less whether we ought to consider some other portion to be the middle Heian, I stand by my decision. I think of the rebellions of Masakado and Sumitomo as harbingers of future challenges to imperial power, which would eventually make the court politically irrelevant, though the Kuge in the 940s could be forgiven for interpreting these events as curious anomalies. My plan for this season is to begin with three overview episodes focusing on Japan from the perspective of four groups, the nobles, the commoners, the clergy, and the samurai, the last two of whom will be combined into a single episode. These survey episodes will help us to understand the larger events which would come to define the later Heian period and put them in their proper context. We will return to the narrative history in episode 4, beginning with the Fujiwara regents who continued to tighten their grips on the reins of power. For now, however, let's focus on the flowering of culture that occurred during the later Heian period. We will begin with the capital itself. By the mid-900s, Heian-kyo was, well, a bit of a mess. Much of the capital was occupied by the rubble of collapsed government buildings, and some of the official structures that still stood were infested with local pests like centipedes and wasps. While the imperial palace itself was still relatively well kept, in the ensuing years it would burn down repeatedly, and fire in general was a constant danger in a city made of wood. The Heian period as a whole saw a massive decline in the Japanese population, and this led to the abandonment of large urban centers across the nation. In the early Heian, the cities of Dazaifu, Naniwa, and the capital itself all boasted urban societies, but by the mid-900s, Naniwa and Dazaifu had seen their populations shrink to absurdly sparse levels. Heian-kyo became the only urban center in an entire nation of small villages and farmsteads. 
We will discuss the causes of the Heian period's decreasing population in more detail in the next episode. But for now, let's return to one of Japan's oldest art forms, poetry. We discussed last season how the nobles of the Heian period practically used poetry as their standard form of written communication. The ability to compose poetry was essential for any member of the nobility, and writing a particularly moving poem at the right time and place could even result in advancement in rank or promotion of office. I am referring here to poetry competitions. Sometimes these contests were announced in advance, usually to commemorate a particular holiday, but other times they were spontaneous affairs that would happen at a party already in progress. Imagine that you are a lower-ranked kuge attending such a party, and after a few saucers of sake, someone calls for poetry. As others write odes commemorating the season or the occasion, you hastily prepare something about the beauty of a nearby shrine, and everyone seems impressed with your work. If a higher-ranked noble like the Udaijin, Minister of the Right, or even the Sadai-ben, Controller of the Left, were in attendance and impressed by your work, this could set you apart and lead to great things in your future. While many poems expressed melancholy or endless longing, there were plenty of verses likewise dedicated to love. We haven't talked much about the historical Japanese conception of love, but this is largely because little was written of it until the Heian period. Every culture defines love in its own way, and the Heian vision of romantic love, at least among the nobility, was passionate, pleasurable, exciting, and often secret. Before we delve too much farther into the ahem, affairs of the Kuge, we ought to discuss marriage in slightly greater detail than we have thus far. Keep in mind that this episode is focused on the nobility, not the common people. We will discuss their marriages in the next episode. The primary purpose of marriage for the Kuge was to preserve or expand political power for their respective clans. This is not unlike other nobility practically the world over in the mid-900s and 1000s, but what made the Japanese version unique was the tradition of matrilocal polygamy. Matrilocal means that the wife continues living with her immediate family after being joined with a husband. In many other cultures, this means that the husband would leave his home and live with his wife's family, but because the Japanese nobles were polygamous, this meant that wives would live with their families and their spouse would periodically visit. Most Kuge clans would want to match at least one of their daughters with a member of the Fujiwara clan, or, better yet, with a member of the imperial family, or, better yet, the emperor himself. Accepting an offer of marriage meant that the more powerful party could expect a certain measure of support from the weaker party because their daughter's future was linked with the fortunes of her husband. The weaker party in such a pairing would expect the more powerful clan to assist them with getting better bureaucratic appointments for their sons. You might be wondering how any of this arrangement works when children come along. Because powerful noblemen would have several, or sometimes several dozen, wives, it would have been difficult at best for him to both pursue a political career and raise his children. Because his wives still lived with their families, his father-in-law usually served as what might be considered a father figure in the child's life. 
Thus, children would generally be emotionally closer to their mother's family, especially their maternal grandfather, than they would be with their father or with his immediate family. While marriage was largely utilized as a tool for building political alliances and patron-client networks, love was another matter entirely. It was common over time for a husband to eventually have a favored wife whose children were given more advantages than his others, but romantic love was usually experienced through illicit extramarital affairs. This is another similarity which Heian Japan shares with medieval Europe, where the noble class likewise frequently sought sexual affection outside the boundaries of marriage. In Europe, however, if a noble or a knight was caught in such an affair, the penalties ranged from castration to death for the men, and almost certain confinement to a convent for the women, if they were lucky. So, was this considered wrong among the nobles of Japan in the 900s, 1000s, and 1100s? Yes and no. If such an affair were made public, then it would be considered shameful for the parties involved, and the nobleman in that unfortunate couple might be removed from his office. The woman involved might be divorced from her jilted spouse, and would likely be expected to enter a Buddhist convent to recover her good name. While sources indicate that this behavior was commonplace, those who participated were expected to keep things discreet. Such affairs would have been impossible if it had not been for the servants and friends of the parties involved. Handwritten notes would be delivered by such a third party, often poems, to which the addressee would then write a response to be delivered by their own servant or trusted friend. These friends would also serve as lookouts when the secret couple would meet in their secret room of the palace or residence. It seems as though it was normal for both men and women of the Heian court to juggle many lovers at once, and they were expected to keep this discreet not only in general, but also secret from each partner. Jealousy is reported from both men and women upon discovering that one of their secret lovers is also having carnal relations with another member of the court, particularly if the other lover was a political rival. These lovers might vent their rage by assaulting the other partner, sometimes with lethal results. Not every love affair was between men and women, however. Homosexuality in Japan has been recorded since ancient times, and it appears that there was no real stigma against it either from the native cults nor from the Buddhist establishment. A later Japanese writer of the 1600s would point out that the first three generations of gods in the Nihon Shoki were all male, and argued that they must have practiced homosexual relations themselves. I use the word practice in the previous sentence because that is how homosexuality was approached, as something someone did rather than a defining character trait. Noblemen who engaged in sex with other men would also have several wives, and noble women who likewise engaged in sex with other women would still have husbands and be expected to produce children. The gossip that drove the social life at court often revolved around all of these secret romances, both real and fictional. But as long as all parties involved were discreet, no one was shamed in any way, and there was no expectation of punishment. Events at court were never far removed from existing power dynamics, however, and while a noblewoman, for example, might rebuff the initial advances of a high-ranking nobleman, she would have to exercise a great caution in maintaining a balance between 
firmly refusing, but not doing so in a way that gave offense. It was probably safer to indulge his desires and hope that he would lose interest soon after. Just because there seems to have been no systemic cultural stigma against the romantic adventures of the Heian nobles doesn't mean that everyone approved. Certain members of the Buddhist clergy preached against such pleasure-seeking behavior, and sometimes even the regent, whom I hope you'll remember was usually the most powerful man in the country, would make a proclamation against shameful scandals and hedonistic recreation. These voices were the minority, however, and their scolding is generally believed to have been ineffective. While illicit love affairs and scandalous rendezvous tend to get most of the attention, the nobles of the Heian period were also quite fashionable. By the middle Heian, a popular hairstyle for women was draping their long hair behind them, with the expectation that it should grow long enough to reach the ground. Noble women in the Heian period wore the Juni Hitoe, which consisted of twelve thin silk robes layered atop one another so that the sleeves and collars displayed a beautiful pattern of tiered colors. The individual kimonos were not worn higgledy-piggledy, but carefully selected so that the colors and patterns complemented one another and resulted in a beautiful overall appearance. The hems of these kimonos covered the woman's feet as well, so that all that could be seen of the average noblewoman's bare skin in public was her face and maybe her hands. If she wanted to conceal her face, she had the option of covering it with a hiyogi, a decorative collapsible fan. The diaries recovered from the Heian period indicate that critiquing the styles of other nobles, both men and women, was a common subject of conversation among friends. The noblewoman's face was made up to be as white as possible, as this was the standard for being considered beautiful. Their teeth, however, were dyed so that they were jet black, also considered beautiful. The makeup routine did not end there. Noble ladies plucked their natural eyebrows and painted their own about an inch higher than where they would normally grow. Aesthetic appreciation was considered essential for Japanese nobility in this era. A kuge, whether a man or a woman, was expected to have an informed opinion on all things artistic, whether it was a visual painting, a handwritten poem, the color of the autumn leaves, the form of a statue, and on and on. I used the example of a handwritten poem because handwriting was another area in which nobles were expected to excel. I can tell you from some experience that brush calligraphy is not a simple or easy art form. The shapes of the characters, the amount of ink in the brush, the speed of the strokes are all on display in a finished piece, along with a hundred other elements identifiable to the trained eye. The nobility of Heian Kyo were especially fussy about handwriting, as they believed it was a window into the practitioner's soul. A poem could contain all of the internal elements considered necessary for success beautiful rhythm, pleasing subject matter, appropriate voice, etc but still fail to impress a noble lady if the hand that rendered the script was sloppy or inarticulate or otherwise perceived to be unpracticed or inferior. A well-composed poem written with a technique that followed the conventions of good taste, however, testified to the potential lover's distinguished lineage and noble pedigree. In the first episode of last season, Another Fresh Start, I mentioned that some changes began to occur in the architectural styles of the homes of the Kuge. 
The style that came to dominate noble housing in the late 900s through the late 1100s was called Shinden Zukuri, and it consisted of a raised floor construction that situated halls and rooms in a U-shape around a carefully manicured landscape that usually featured a small pond or a stream. I will post some pictures of this layout in the supplemental post. Be sure to check them out. When the most powerful nobles in Japan needed some serenity and solitude, they could venture into their backyard and sit by the cool of their pond, listening to the hum of cicadas and the gentle babbling of a nearby stream. By now, the lifestyles of the Heian nobles probably sound quite decadent. I think it is fair to describe them thus, but we should also not ignore their lasting contribution to Japanese culture, a contribution which long outlived the Heian period itself good manners. All of this feasting, lovemaking, art appreciation, and calligraphy helped contribute to the standards not only of the arts themselves, but of proper behavior. Now that we have some idea of the average lifestyle of Heian Japan's 1%, I use the phrase figuratively as the proportion of nobles was actually much smaller than that, you might be wondering whether the commoners, peasants, and other non-noble castes had a similarly high standard of living. If you're assuming that their lives were much harder and less aesthetically rich, you are mostly correct. Next time, we'll discuss the lifestyles of those who made the opulence of Heian Kill possible through the strength of their backbreaking labor. Until then, thank you for listening. If you would like access to exclusive bonus episodes, as well as ad-free versions of the regular episodes, please consider supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash ahistoryofjapan. Japan.